This week about uh, the church in Ephesus, I want to begin by reading again uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and jumping right in here, uh, the church, to the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are false and have found them false. Uh, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. And so Jesus commends this church for a lot of great qualities. And yet he says in verse 4, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, and, and which, I hate, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes... I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So this is the first letter uh, that uh, John is writing to the church here. And as we talked about last week, as you can see in your outline, he commends this church for five basic things here. It was a very hardworking church. They labored intensely to the point of exhaustion. We talked about that. It was a patient, persevering church. It was a holy church. It was a discerning or a doctrinally pure church, and then it was a devoted church, uh, a committed church, you know, not growing weary, that kind of thing. Uh, so he commends this church for a lot of things, and I thought, who wouldn't want to be part of that church? Uh, you recall that Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful, the faithful in Christ Jesus. And then verse 15 of Ephesians 1 I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. And if we, uh, I had asked you a few weeks back to read Acts 19 as well, but you recall this was not only a faithful church, a church that loved people, uh, but they were spirit-filled. Uh, remember Paul, Paul is saying, when I came to you, I baptized you in water, laid hands on you, received the Holy Ghost. Uh, and how you spoke in tongues, you prophesied. There was 12 when they began. It was a church that was discipled. He taught them for two years, and they had, so they had spiritual hunger. They were evangelistic. They, you know, all who lived and heard the word of the Lord in Asia, in Asia, in, area, in that area. And so they reached their area demographically as well as geographically and ethnically. Uh, there was the miracles in this church. They saw the power of God from the hankies, the, the aprons, the work aprons, and so the sick were being healed. Demon spirits were cast out, open confession of sin. The riot that started because of uh, Demetrius, that businessman, thinking that his income was going to be affected by, by the gospel. And so really the whole city at one point was in an uproar. And I, I can just imagine, you know, this is a... Just a Holy Ghost revival church had a great start. Uh, they were persecuted as well. But now here we are, thir about 30 years later, uh, after, after Paul was there and ministering to them and everything else. And so Jesus commends this church for numerous qualities, remarkable characteristics that really set the, set the stage for, 
for uh, what he was saying and really establishing the fact that, that they had served the Lord, they had served him well. And I thought, well, really today even few modern churches could probably, you know, compare, you know, <laughs> to, that, to that kind of accommodation. And much more could be said with regards to the virtues of this congregation and, and I thought, well, would I, be, would I be, as a pastor, thrilled to lead this church or not? You know, because there was one thing missing. It was devastating. It was a destructive thing that looms so ever large in the life of the church. And that is from the word, but. But I have this against you, the New American Standard Bible says. Uh, this is not John speaking. This is Jesus speaking. And so, uh, guess what? I don't know how well we'd receive that, but uh, we, all, we always say, you know, well, if God be for us, who can be against us? But here we have Jesus against us, so who can be for us, you know? And, and he, had, he had said that you have left, you have forsaken your first love, but, or nevertheless, yet, uh, you kind of know immediately when someone hands you a string of accolades followed by the but, by the yet, by the nevertheless, you know? Uh, like, Richard, I, we appreciate you. You've done this and that. Everything is good. However, it's like we, you know that trouble's coming when that's used. And so here is the, the complaint, the condemnation, if you will, of Jesus. And that was they had forsaken their first love. The King James says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. The NIV says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. And so really, Jesus' complaint here is an indictment on their lack of devotion. In spite of all these great attributes, these traits, Christ declared that the church in Ephesus had failed in one important manner, and that was they had left, forsaken their first love. Now, in the Greek language here, the order of the words is especially emphatic in that the object of the verb is before the verb. Literally, it reads this way, thy first love thou hast left. Thy first love thou hast left. Now, the word for love here is the deepest and most meaningful word uh, for love found in the Greek language. Then the word left or forsaken in the Greek language usually is used of a willful abandonment, a deliberate giving up, although it also includes, and I want you to get this, it also includes the results of long neglect. The results of long neglect. Although they had not departed completely from their love for God, their love no longer had the fervency the passion, the depth, the meaning it once had. They were a busy church. The members did much to benefit themselves and the community, but they were acting out of the wrong motives, which tells us that work for God must be motivated by love for God or it's really uh, not going to last and it's going to be insignificant. Another commentator said this of chapter 2, 4, and 5, Just as when a man and woman fall in love so also new believers rejoice at their newfound forgiveness. But when we lose the sight of the seriousness of sin, we begin to lose the thrill of our forgiveness. I was thinking about that today as I was re-going over the notes and just talking in my mind going over this stuff. I thought, well, um, do, do you, are you still grateful 
for the grace of God. I mean, I, I always like to say it this way. Does the grace of God still amaze you? You know, I'm, I'm still overwhelmed at that, that God would forgive a sinner such as I kind of thing. And, and, and really, in the first steps of our Christian life, we might have had enthusiasm without knowledge, but the question we should ask ourselves even now is, do we have today knowledge without that enthusiasm, without that passion, without that zeal? Because we need to have both, you know. Uh, uh, we, we need to keep that love for God uh, untarnished, intense. And so Stanley Horton wrote this, In spite of all their zeal and hard work for the Lord, the Ephesians had one very serious flaw. They had left, not lost, they had left their first love, forsaken their first love. And so here at the church in Ephesus, they were giving the Lord their service, but they weren't giving the Lord themselves. They were giving the Lord their service, but not themselves. And although outstanding in their work, the Lord talked about this last week, they no longer were enjoying the intimate fellowship that he desired to have with them. Now, at one time, the church uh, in Ephesus had been channels for this agape love, this high, holy self giving love that was expressed in its fullness uh, by God giving His Son in Calvary, and they responded to Christ's love by pouring out their hearts in fervent love and praise to Him. Everything was going good, but now I think they had become satisfied to have right doctrine and to fulfill what they considered was their duty to the Lord, but their work for the Lord no longer had Christ-like compassion. And so their lives, if you will, were very busy but, but also spiritually barren. We can be busy and still miss out. We can be doing right things with, with, wrong, with a wrong heart, basically. And so they needed to correct this loss of the high and holy love that had marked them when they first turned to the Lord. Uh, former uh, general superintendent of the Assemblies of God, Thomas Trask, said this regarding the church in Ephesus. First love speaks to us of courtship when that special girl or boy was the focal point of all of our attention, the most important person in the world. Yet as the saying goes, he writes, familiarity breeds contempt. Even with a beautiful and loving husband or wife, we get used to our blessings and settle into the routines of life. American journalist Helen Rowland said this, when a girl, I like this quote, when a girl marries, she exchanges the attentions of many men for the inattentions of one. <laughs> now, how many of remember this illustration where a husband and wife were riding in their car and, and they come to a stoplight and over by the stoplight is this car and it's like there's two heads but one body because she is sitting so close to him as he's driving back when they had the front bench seats without the council. Remember those old days? And, and so this car pulled up, and, and, and she, she said, Honey, honey, look at them. Why don't we sit like they're sitting? And the husband's driving, and he says to his wife, I haven't moved. <laughs> Church, God hasn't moved. And we might have been right next to him, but now we're scooching over, and we've moved. This was a problem with the church in Ephesus. You know, and this is honestly why revival is needed because when people are revived, they fall in love with Jesus all again. Not that your life is, you know, 
out of control, this, that, or whatever, but, but you fall in love with Jesus. Now, something similar happens with Christians. We can hear the story of the cross so often that we become jaded, no longer moved at our Lord's suffering. We become dispassionate about His passion. We can grow so accustomed to the supernatural that we lose the state of expectancy needed for anything supernatural to occur. In his commentary on Revelation, John Wolver, just one of, one of the ones I'm looking at with Stanley Horton, and there's another one on my, on, my, on my desk, but he said this, the period following Pentecost described in Acts 2 was characterized by love and devotion for Christ himself, a love for the word of God, a love manifested in fellowship with the saints and in their prayers to God, and a love expressed in the commendation to Timothy of all them that love his appearing, 2 Timothy 4.8. And he says this, The church at Ephesus was now in the second generation of Christians, those who had come into the church in the 30 years since Paul had ministered in their midst. Though they continued to labor faithfully as those who had preceded them, the love of God which characterized the first generation was missing. This cooling of heart which had overtaken them in relationship to God was a dangerous forerunner of spiritual apathy, which later was to erase uh, was later to erase all Christian testimony in this important center of Christian influence. Thus, church, it has ever been in the history of the church. First, there's a cooling of spiritual love, then the love of God replaced by love of the things of the world with the resulting compromise and spiritual corruption. That then is followed by a departure from the faith and the loss of effective spiritual testimony. That's why I believe Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether or not you are still in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ is in you? Unless, of course, he writes, you fill the test. Now, how do I know if I'm still in love with Jesus? Uh, let me give you 10 questions to ask yourself. Not on your outline, just, just, just go through these. Number one, do I talk openly about Jesus or have I become ashamed to talk about Jesus to others? Number two, is he continually on my mind? Is Jesus my all in all? Three, do I spend quality and quantity time with him? Four, do I enjoy sitting at his feet, listening to him, being in his presence? Five, do I delight to do God's will? Six, do I obey him and his word? Because he said, if you love me, you will obey me. Now, in other words, is there a burning desire in my heart to have the Lord Jesus Christ continue to change me and transform me. We talked about the transformation, Romans 8, 28 and 29, last Sunday. Uh, do, I, do I, seven, do I place myself in a position to be taught more of him? Do I make myself available to teachers and preachers and sermons and, and still Bible studies, whatever? Do I enjoy worshiping him? Or has worship become... Uh, I'm just a spectator, and they're just there to entertain me. If that happens, you've, you've forsaken your first love. It, number nine, is there a passion in my heart for more of him? Do I, do I want him to reveal himself to me or in me? And then number ten, do I love Jesus with as much fervor as I did when I first got saved? 
I ask a question on your outline. Don't answer it, but it's question number one, the second bullet point underneath that. If you can remember a time when you were closer to Jesus than you are right now, have you forsaken your first love? Very possibly. Very possibly. I like David Ravenhill's uh, quote here. He says, one of the difficulties with any message as opposed, you know, any written message as opposed to the spoken is that we miss the feeling behind the words. He says, if only we could catch, capture the pathos here, the emotion, the, the passion of what Christ is saying to the church in Ephesus here. Because here we have a bridegroom speaking to the bride. He remembers a time when their relationship was alive with fervor, feeling, and passion. Hours together seemed like minutes. Everything else paled in importance to being together. This is the voice of the lonely lover who recalls the past and wonders what happened, what went wrong. In Ephesus, something has changed from the early days when everything about their faith was fresh and new. Their lives had been made new by the uh, washing of regeneration. Their worship was spontaneous, filled with emotion and expression of thanksgiving. There was a hunger for God's word, drinking it in with an insatiable appetite. Everything they did was done to please the lover and master. No task was too trivial. They were eager to convey how deeply they felt for their beloved. Their passion was pure. Their priorities were right. Jesus Christ was a sinner and supreme thought every, in every thought and every action. Truly, he had, he had come to have first place in everything, as the Bible says, to have supremacy, that he might have preeminence. Now, their passion has been replaced with other priorities. Oh, there's work to be done. There's a world to win for Jesus. We got to do what we can do. I just preached on this a few weeks back, but, but doctrinal purity had been replaced or has replaced devotional passion. The letter of the word is far more important than the spirit of the word. Worship had given place to work. Their love has begun to go cold as the chill of ritualism has begun. Hearts that were once thrilled at the mention of his name has turned to pride as they boast about their ability to hunt down heretics and test apostles. They were doctrinally pure, you know. And, and so really the best way to describe this church is to liken it to an expensive engagement ring crafted by a leading jeweler. The workmanship was exquisite. Uh, every stone is cut to, per, to perfection and, and so is set to enhance the overall appearance. And yet in that beautiful ring being crafted by this jeweler, something's missing. There was no central stone, just empty prongs. It was missing the jewel of first love. Everything else was going, going good, but they missed first love. And so the church at Ephesus had many fine and admirable qualities, but the central stone of first love had been missing. Paul expresses it so well when writing to the Corinthians when Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. We could add, if I labor to extend God's kingdom, even working long hours with painful toil, and though I rid the church of evil men and test those who call themselves apostles, and yet have lost my first love, it profits me nothing. And so even Luke gives us a glimpse of this same problem 
in microcosm when he shows us the church represented by two or three gathered together. In Luke chapter 10, we read that Jesus is visiting the house of Mary and Martha. Mary's only interest was Jesus. You know, she is just content to sit at his feet and soak it all in, just to be in his presence, to listen. Martha, however, you know the story, is very busy. Busy doing what? Well, uh, things that she thought had to get done, and she's even complaining to Jesus, like, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work myself? Tell her to help me. And then Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, many being plural. But then he says, but one thing, singular, one thing is needed. Mary has chosen the better, and it will not be taken away from her. Mary has chosen really the good part. And so the church really desperately needs to understand the value that Jesus places upon devoting ourselves to him, literally making him our first love. Now, in the Western church especially, we have become distracted with all of our preparation. Like Martha, we fail to understand the importance of sitting at his feet. This, I believe, was Paul's intention when he wrote to the Colossians, exhorting them to keep their priorities right. Colossians 1, verse 18. He, being Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. The New American Standard Bible. And then it says this in a different translation. So that in everything he might have supremacy. That in all things he might have preeminence. That's the goal. That's the goal. John MacArthur in his book, The Ultimate Priority, tells this story. He says, a number of years ago, I read a newspaper account of a christening party in a wealthy Boston church, or suburb, uh, wealthy Boston suburb. The parents had opened their uh, beautiful home to friends and relatives who had come to celebrate the wonderful event. As the party was moving along and the people were having a wonderful time eating and drinking and celebrating and enjoying one another, Somebody asked, by the way, where's the baby? The heart of that mother jumped and she instantly left the room, rushing into the master bedroom where she left the baby asleep in the middle of the massive bed. The baby was dead, smothered by the many coats of the guests. And he writes this, how easily we become caught up in the work of ministry and yet, and yet miss ministering to the master himself. How easily we become caught up in the work of ministry and yet miss ministering to the master himself. G. Campbell Morgan said this, no amount of activity in the king's service will make up for the neglect of the king himself. Our one goal, Charles Stanley in his, in his uh, article, Touch of His Freedom, writes, I believe with all my heart that it's impossible to be both goal-oriented and God-oriented at the same time. One orientation always will take precedence over the other. When our, desires to achieve, to, when our desire to achieve takes the lead, several things happen in our relationship with God. He becomes a means to an end rather than the end. We tend to use God 
rather than worship him. We find ourselves seeking information about him rather than transformation by him. See, there is a deception that comes with any emphasis on service. And the lie is that service to God can be measured by numbers and results. We subtly become like the Pharisees who prided himself on being spiritual because he fasted, he paid his tithes, his works in his own mind were evidence of his own spirituality. But the intensity of first love, however, cannot be measured by numbers or by programs, nor can it be valued by budgets or by buildings. We deceive ourselves if we look at a marriage as being great solely based on the size of the house, the spouse's income, or the size of the family. None of these visible assets reveal the love the couple actually shares together. Now, with that being said, let me give you some things here on first love. First love transcends all other affections. First love transcends all other affections. Jesus said, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does, does not take up his cross, which is death to self, and follow me is not worthy of me, Jesus said. So first love trans, transcends all the other affections. First love also trans, transcends the love of things. First John 2.15, John writes, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. James takes this a step further in James 4, verse 4. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Paul adds this word of warning to his son Timothy concerning the last days. He says, for men will be lovers of self. Lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, goes on. And then he says, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. So first love is measured by priority, intensity, quality, and purity. Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, tells them, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ I might present you a pure virgin. G. Campbell Morgan again writes, First love is the abandonment of all for a love that has abandoned all. He continues, All zeal for the master that is not the outcome of love is worthless. Let me take this one step further. When we speak about love, we can rarely fall into a subtle trap of deception that that lulls us into a false security and thereby weakens our love. Let me explain what I mean. We all know that God loves us unconditionally, amen? We, he loves us with an unconditional love. He, his love toward us is unconditional. Regardless of what we do, God will always love mankind. But we also need to realize there's a vast difference between God's love for us and God's pleasure in us. Here's what I mean. Malachi chapter 1. God makes it clear through the prophet 
that he loves his people. Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. And then a few verses down in verse 10, Malachi 1.10, he says, I am not pleased with you, says the Lord. So God loves us, yes, but he's not pleased with them. And there's a difference. First, love is that quality of love that seeks to please God in everything we do. We were made for his pleasure, not for our pleasure. And for thy pleasure, we've been created. Uh, so basically, uh, now I would not consider myself a marriage counselor. Uh, I've done marriage counseling over the years, numerous times. Um, but basically, to me, some of the best marriage counseling comes from the scriptures. And uh, strange as it may seem, uh, the advice given by the Apostle Paul uh, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 7 uh, says, uh, it says this, 1 Corinthians 7, 33. But one who is married is concerned about how he may please, how he may please his wife. Then referring to the woman, he writes in verse 34, how she may please her husband. I honestly believe that 99.99% of all divorces are caused by one thing, and that one thing is selfishness. We want to please ourselves and not please our partner, our spouse, husband or wife. So often marriage is entered into from a selfish standpoint, standpoint looking for a partner to meet your needs rather than living to please your partner. Uh, this, I believe, is what the Lord desires for his marriage, his marriage to his church, his bride, us, you and me, a people whose one goal ought to be we ought to live to please him, plain and simple. We, we see this expressed in the words of Jesus in his own life where he says this in John 8, 29, the one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do, he says, what pleases him. Jesus always did what pleased the Father. The Father states of the Son as well in Luke 3.22, You are my Son whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. With you I am well pleased. Paul taught this glorious revelation when in writing the Colossians. He states, Colossians 1.10, And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him. And may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Pleasing Him comes before bearing fruit in every good work. It's pleasing Him. And to those in Ephesus, Paul wrote, in Ephesians 5, 10, and find out what pleases the Lord. The idea being find out and do it, all right? And so the, the Ephesian church had fallen from this type of relationship and was told by Jesus himself, you need to repent. Her first love had been eclipsed by doctrine, by discipline, and by duty, and no longer by devotion. That's why, honestly, we have to constantly guard our hearts and guard our relationship because uh, one can become of law versus that of love. 
the, the church at Ephesus. They were, they were legally blameless. They had all the outward appearances of being the successful church. But the all-seeing eyes of the master examiner longed again for the days when their hearts were aflame with passion of his glorious presence. As Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, and 3, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our, of our God and Father. This really reveals the difference between the church in Thess Thessalonica versus Ephesus. The Ephesians were said to have the same virtues without faith, hope, and love. But he mentions faith, hope, and love to the church in, uh, to the Thessalonians here. So when our work for God is lacking in faith, our labor is performed without love and our perseverance is without hope, then we too have forsaken or left our first love. And as G. Campbell Morgan states it so well, without first love, we may retain ceaseless activity, immaculate purity, severest orthodoxy, but there'll be no love shining in a dark place. And so we have the condemnation of Jesus. Let's move on to point number three in your outline, his counsel, his exhortation, the word of correction. And so we're going to talk about in the next uh, 20 minutes or so how then to reignite our first love, that, 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 you know, that spiritual passion, how to rekindle the flame. And there are three things, three blanks on your page. Uh, I'm going to say, say it this way. They all start with the letter R. The first one is remember. Remember. Now, why would Jesus say to remember first? Because the first step to amendment is to realize that something has gone wrong. Bottom line, we will never get help until we admit we have a problem. We'll never receive forgiveness until we admit we're a sinner in need of a Savior. All right? A person will never get saved until they realize their sin, they've sinned and they've offended a holy God with their sin. And so really to correct any departure from God, the first step is to go back to the place of departure. Remember, therefore, whence thou art fallen, Jesus said. Remember, remember, with all their earnestness and all their activity, the leaving of their first intense love made them literally a fallen assembly. And Jesus says, remember, recall, remember from where you have fallen. Think back to your former love for the Lord. Remember his presence. Remember the feelings of warmth, of tenderness, of fervor, that spark, that unction, that fellowship, that communion with him. Remember the prayer, the prayer and the sharing and such, the consciousness and the awareness of his presence. Remember the joy of rejoicing in his presence when his presence filled your heart. You are so in love with him. Remember the height, Jesus said. Again, remembering the Lord's presence, the love that existed between you and him. Remember your moments of greatest devotion, the times when you felt most deeply 
his tender love, what it was like when you first got saved. Remember how sinful you were. Remember experiencing forgiveness for the very first time. Remember how he satisfied you spiritually and nothing else would satisfy you. Remember how he's rescued you from spiritual death unto spiritual life and how you used to tell others about Jesus, how you would never miss a service, how you would come and you'd be there with anticipation and expectation because you couldn't wait to be with like-minded believers to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Church, so often spiritual defection, whether of heart or mind, comes from forgetting which was once known. And Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, remember, remember the height from whence you have fallen, the passion, the zeal, the, the fervency that once gripped your heart. Remember. Why? Because, once again, memory can often be the first step to get back to the way it should have been and the way it should be. You recall in Luke chapter 15 the story of the prodigal son. He was in the far country, and it was remembrance that really got, uh, that caught his attention. In Luke 15, 7, when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? Memory was offering the prodigal son a way back to the father. And this is why Jesus says, number one, remember. Number one, remember. Number two is repent. Now, the word repent means to change your mind and fundamental attitude by accepting the change required. The person who repents but then does not follow Jesus is not saved. The person who repents but does not follow Jesus Christ is not saved. Repentance includes a renewing of your mind as well as a change in attitude towards sin as well as self. When you and I discover that something has gone wrong, there are several reactions we may have. First of all, we may feel that nothing can sustain its first luster, so we accept what we consider inevitable. Well, I guess I'm always going to be this way. Number two, we, be, we will be filled with a feeling of resentment and blame life instead of facing, uh, of facing ourselves. And then third, we may decide that the old thrill is to be found along the forbidden pathways and try to find spice for life in sin. But Jesus says, remember and repent. Repentance is an admission that the fault is ours and the feeling of sorrow for it. Godly sorrow brings about repentance. Again, what did the prodigal say? I have sinned. Not my wife, not my husband, not my kid. I, I am responsible for me. I have, did, I have, I've done what? I have sinned. I have missed the mark. See, the hardest thing about repentance is the personal acceptance of, of personal responsibility for our failure. When we start to blame others and put it on this, that, and everything else, that is pride. I have sinned. Repent. I take responsibility. Now, second, repent means turn away from whatever has pulled you away from Christ and turn, return back to Christ. In other words, something has drawn you away from Him. You're, you're attached to something more than you are to Christ. 
Something is consuming your thoughts and energies and keeping your mind from focusing upon Christ and fellowshipping and communicating with Him. You're, you are not focusing your mind on Him in prayer as you walk throughout the day. You are not sharing and communing with Him like you did at first. Something has replaced Him. Something has taken His place. And Jesus says, repent. Go back to the way it was at the beginning and do the first works. Repent. Turn away from that attachment. Turn back to Christ. Uh, I think that today in the church, my own opinion, is that repentance is not preached enough. Jesus Christ came preaching repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. In Acts 3.19, repent then and turn to God so your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Refreshing comes only as we repent. And then we have 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. That's repentance. Then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way. Ask yourself this question. Is what I'm holding on to worth losing my salvation over? Is what I'm holding on to worth losing my salvation over for all eternity. I mean, what do I really want? Do I want his presence? Do I want more of him in my life? Or do I want the land, the houses, the, the fame, the fortune, or whatever? All right, Romans 2, 4, I use this often in altar calls, how God's kindness leads you to repentance. Repentance is a good thing. Christ is calling on his church here to repent. The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Now here's a problem. People today no longer feel that what they're doing is wrong and there's very little conviction for that anymore because they've justified for so long what they're doing that they won't repent of it. Now how many have ever watched the show Everybody Loves Raymond? I've watched every episode every season. I saw, and I repeat, of course, it's been off the, off, off the air as far as the new show has been done for a long time, but there's an episode in which Robert and Amy uh, are, are they're shackling up together, and they tell, I think it was her parents, uh, regarding their living together situation, well, we don't see this as sin anymore. I'm paraphrasing, but it's almost ver verbatim. And it's like, you're now defining what's right and what's wrong? No. God defines in his word what's right and what's wrong. And you can say, I'm okay with this all you want, but before God, it's still not okay. And that's not the preacher coming out and saying that. That's the word of God, you know? And so today, I think the, the hardest thing is to get people to understand that they're a sinner who needs to repent. Because everybody sees themselves, well, we, we're Americans, we're good people, you know, we're okay with whatever. It's like, no. Here, here's the deal. The only sin that Jesus can't forgive besides blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the sin that you and or I refuse to repent of. And so, we have, remember. Number two, repent. Number three, redo. Return or repeat. The third word, repeat, that's the 
consequence of repentance. To go back over and do the things we did at first. It's an interesting thing going on here in the Greek language. There were three imperatives that are being used. There is the imperative to remember, there is the imperative to repent, and there is the imperative to do again. The imperative to remember is in the present tense. In other words, remember and keep on remembering. Never forget. Don't lose the memory of first coming to Christ. Don't lose the memory of first love and the closeness that you once had with him. But the word repent is not in the present tense. Excuse me. Throat's dry. The word repent... is not in the present tense as though it were meant to be an ongoing action. It's in a tense, a past tense, which denotes a moment in time. Something happened and it came to pass. Now, we have no comparison in the English language because, of, because all of our imperatives are in the present tense. Now, suppose you have young children playing around and you're, they're getting too rambunctious and you finally, as a parent, say, kids, stop that. Now, you mean stop that right now, but your kids know you or your grandkids know you, and they know there's going to be another stop that in about two minutes, in about five minutes, in about ten minutes, because they're not taking you at your word of stop that means stop it right now. Now, wouldn't it be nice in the English language that we had a tense that would tell children, stop that right now. One decisive action. That's what comes to mind when the Lord speaks to this church. He says, stop this. Repent of this. He is saying it is a one decisive action that will bring your will again to the Lord and you will recommit yourself to him. Otherwise, the Lord says to the church, if you don't repent, I'll remove your lampstand. He's not talking about salvation He's talking to the church, not to individuals. Sometimes people get the scriptures mixed up with salvation. Now, what is the lampstand once again? It's the place of influence the church has had in the world, a light shining in the darkness. And Jesus says, if you don't repent, you're no longer going to be a visible light to your community. I'm paraphrasing. See, the sorrow of repentance is meant to drive a person to do two things. Number one, it's meant to fling himself on the grace of God, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And number two, it's meant to drive him to action in order to bring forth fruits, meet for repentance. Matthew 3.8, bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance, or produce fruit in keeping with repentance. The great truth of Christianity is that no man needs to stay the way he is. The proof of biblical repentance is a changed life, a life changed by cooperation with the grace of God. Old things pass away, behold, all things become new. And so a true love for God is always manifested in the works it produces. The Ephesians needed to do the first works again. Go back to the way things were. First works refers to works done in response to the outpouring of Christ's love in their hearts, works full of compassion. I asked earlier who would not want to be part of this church. 
You recall, once again, in Acts 19, uh, they were a spirit-filled church. Uh, they prophesied. They spoke boldly about the kingdom of God. They were persecuted. They received a very intense spiritual training. They were discipled. They were evangelistic. Uh, the miracles, I mean, they saw the miracles, the sick being healed, demon spirits being cast out. All were seized with fear. The name of Jesus Christ, it says in verse 17 of Acts 19, was held in high honor. They openly confessed their sin. Uh, verse 18 and verse 19 is publicly. They experienced great power in the word. There was even a riot started by that businessman named Demetrius. The whole city was in an uproar. I mean, what a time they had in the Lord. And now the Ephesian Christians were so sharply warned that if they, did, if they did not heed this exhortation from Jesus Christ, they could expect sudden judgment and removal of the lampstand, the candlestick. Their lampstand would be removed from its place. The church would be removed from the presence of Jesus. Or to put it another way, Jesus would no longer be walking in their midst. The meaning seems to indicate that Jesus would remove the church as a testimony of his. Ultimately, this was tragically fulfilled. The church retained its vigor for several centuries and was not only the seat of Eastern bishops, but also the meeting place of the Third General Council, which took place in A.D. 431, which was held in the Church of St. Mary, whose ruins are still extant today. Ephesus, however, declined as a city. After the 5th century, and the Turks deported its remaining inhabitants in the 14th century. This is why when John, on the Isle of Patmos, writes this revelation of Jesus Christ, John being very familiar with Ephesus, this same John, again quoting Jesus, said, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit showing yourself to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now Jesus said, remain in my love. And then John 15, 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And John 15, 17, this is my command, love each other. John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And then John, 1 John 4.11, Dear friends, since God loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then 1 John 4.20 and 21, If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And it goes on from there. And so here we have John writing the words of Jesus, telling the church at Ephesus, Remember the height from whence you have fallen. Repent, repent, and then redo, do again, repeat the first works. One of the teachers of the law in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 says, He came and he heard him, heard him debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which one is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. 
you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love God with all your heart, with all, with all your understanding, with all your strength, to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus speaking in the last days says there's going to be deception as signs, there's going to be wars, rumors of wars, nation will rise against nation, famines, earthquakes, persecution, false prophets. But he also said that many will turn away from the faith. And Jesus said this in Matthew 24, 12 and 13, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. The love of many, the King James says, will wax cold. In other words, what is Jesus saying? In the last days, true love will be in short supply. George Wood in his notes on Ephesus, Dr. George Wood, who's now with Jesus, he was a former superintendent of the Assemblies of God as well. He says, visiting Ephesus is a reminder of how true the Lord's words were. He'll remove the lampstand when love grows cold. No one, to my knowledge, even sleeps in Ephesus these days. The town has been relocated and renamed, a little village of about 20,000 Turkish people five miles away from Ephesus. The lampstand eventually was taken out. You take love away, the love of the Lord away from the church, and its witness is going to die as well. Now, why is it that you find so few churches who generation after generation have a strong witness? It seems like in an era, an area like this church, this church emerges, it's a light, then it fades away. Then another church is brought up, and it's a light, and it fades away. Why is that? It's the Lord acting out his judgments on his church. The lampstand gets removed. He says, I will come to you, not his second coming, but I will come to you and remove the lampstand. It's a powerful word to the church even today. No wonder Jesus said, you who have ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Seven times in the Gospels, Jesus uses this phrase, he who has ears, let him hear. Eight times in Revelation, it's used indicating the importance of constant repetition. In other words, there is a hearing which is audible, but there's also a hearing of the heart, a quickening to the consciousness and to the mind. We are to hear. We are to listen. We are to apply. We are to put in practice. To him who overcomes, conquering, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. Finally, here in this, this first letter, the Lord puts, us, puts before us the image of when he created man and woman and put them in paradise, the garden. In this paradise, he put two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. He told mankind, you cannot eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but he never told man he could not eat of the tree of life. But human nature is such that in the fall, the human race chose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, 
and taste sin rather than tasting life. Now in the paradise of God, the opportunity is restored to eat of the tree of life. And Jesus says, to the one who overcomes, this overcoming has nothing to do with hard work or efforts on our part because we know that salvation is of grace. Revelation 12 tells us how we are to conquer. We conquer by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, in that we did not love our lives as our own. The conquering has already been done by Jesus Christ on the cross. He won. He conquered. The Lord did it. But on the other hand, are we submitted? Are we surrendered to him? We're there to cheer and we're there to say he won and we give him praise, honor, and glory. You won't deny us that testimony. We'll conquer by his blood, by the word of our testimony, and that we did not love our lives as our own. My question to you in closing tonight is this. If the Lord was writing you a letter, what would he commend you for? What would he commend you for? What would he condemn you for? What counsel would he give you? And really when it comes down to it, and we'll look at the Nicolaitans later on in a different church, but is in your own heart of hearts tonight, is first love a problem? And do you need to repent? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Jesus, for your directness. I thank you for your love, your care, concern, not just for the church in Ephesus, but for us, part of your church today. And Lord, we ask ourselves tonight the things that you might commend of us and the things you might condemn of us. And we ask ourselves, even tonight, do I need to repent? God, you know our hearts better than we know our own hearts. And I pray... Holy Spirit, you would help us to be yielded to you and to love you with that first love. And if we have fallen from that, that we would remember the height from once we had fallen, that we would repent of doing things our way and not your way. We repent of a cooling off, if you will, of our first love and ask God that 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 first love would be reignited in our heart of hearts, in our lives, in my life, in, in each life that's here tonight. And, and we, we pray, Holy Spirit, give us all ears to hear what you would have us know and say and do as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Next week, if I could have you read Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. We'll look at the church in Smyrna. One of the seven, there's only two, but one of the seven where he doesn't find a problem with, but a church that was undergoing persecution. And I will say this, that the present state in America is not a guaranteed state.